Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we talk with contributors to a new collection of writing by LGBTQ Appalachians about how they see themselves reflected here in the region. There's kind of something queer about Appalachia and everything, right? The rocks, the mountains, the insects, the relationship you have to nature. Everything's a little bit queer. And we hear about the history of baseball in the coal camps of southwestern Virginia. I saw a photograph of a ragtag baseball team. They had the the name Miners on their jerseys, and some of the letters were sewn on, and some of them were drawn on with a pen. We also returned to flood-damaged eastern Kentucky. Gospel musician Dean Maccabee lost guitars and amplifiers given to him by his father. He He asked me one thing. He said, son, promise me that you will not take your talent into the bars, into the nightclubs. And I promise you that. And I've been playing, I play gospel, strictly gospel, what I play. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. On July 28th, southeastern Kentucky was swallowed by historic flooding. At least 43 people died. Many others saw their homes, property, and family keepsakes washed away or drowned in thick mud. In Millstone, Kentucky, there's an active country gospel tradition, but many musicians lost their instruments, which cut them off from participating in a part of the culture that's defined their lives. Through the generosity of their friends and neighbors, these musicians have been able to reconnect with their music, finding comfort and even joy. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave has this story. I'm in Letcher County, Kentucky, in an old coal camp called Millstone. It sits along the North Fork of the Kentucky River, and it was one of the communities hit hard by the July 28th flood. I'm here with Dean Mackby. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's counting up all the homes in this community that were lost. 10, 11, 12, 13. In, in Millstone? In Millstone. In a community of less than 100, 13 is a staggering number. Dino, that's what everyone calls him, grew up in Millstone. He moved back here from South Carolina 25 years ago to be closer to his aging parents. And he bought the house right next to theirs. After his parents passed, Dino's sister moved into the family home. Her house was one of the ones lost to the flood. So it's just an empty lot now. Just an empty lot, yeah. This is where we grew up, right here. The flood filled Dino's house with about six feet of water, but he and his wife planned to rebuild. Dino's done a lot of work gutting the first floor and treating for mold. Just be careful on these steps. That's where this lean in here. We walk up the wobbly stairs into the house. Tore it all out, and I'll put all the drawers back put the plywood on it, sheetrock and insulation. So yeah, just to describe it, we're down to the studs in here. Down to, and down to the floor. Down to the floor, yeah. I mean, dirt, dirt floor. floor. Yeah. Dirt floor. While Dino's made some progress on his house, he hasn't been able to give much time to the wooden shed out back. That was his music room. The outside of the shed is decorated with cast iron skillets, old license plates, and carved wooden animals. See my art stuff? That's my dad. My dad's brother carved the, the bear. Then my dad did the fishing and the birds. Dino shows me the inside. But this is my music stuff right here. Wow. Mix of boards. My mic, my studio microphone. I don't know where it's at in here. I'm not. I'm slowly getting stuff out of it here. Yeah, you can see the rust on the microphones yes, and all that flood yes. mud dried. Amplifiers and speakers are tossed around on their sides. Dried mud is caked over everything, and black mold has started growing on the walls. The license plates hanging above the door show how high the water rose. It got got up to the license place the water it is. Gosh, that's what, like 10 feet? Yes. Wow. So that's almost to the ceiling. Well, it is to the ceiling. It it was to the ceiling because, see here, the the light, it's got, it had water in the ceiling. Oh, yeah, the ceiling fan is all warped and drooping. Wow. (laughs) We head over to the small camper that Dino and his wife are living in now, and he tells me how he got into playing guitar. My dad played played music, and um, and I started when I was an early age. He started me out. I started when I was probably about eight years old, teaching me. 
the basics of, of a flat top. Now, I was probably about 12. He brought a bass guitar home and, and introduced me to a bass guitar. And I really liked it, and that's what I stuck with. Dino's dad was a well-known flat top player in the community. He played country music in the bars and nightclubs around town. But then he got saved, trading in late nights at the bar for early mornings at church. After that, he made one request to Dino. He asked, he asked me one thing. He said, son, promise me that you will not take your talent into the bars, into the nightclubs. And I promised him that. And I've been playing, I play gospel, strictly gospel while I play. As a young boy, Dino traveled with his dad to different churches to play. Evangelists would come in and they would say, well, come and help us with the music. And we would go for that week, we'd, we'd be in revival with them and we'd help them with the music. And that's what we did. We just went to different churches and just have a good time with the Lord. As an adult, Dino continued to perform gospel music with his dad. For 20 years, they were part of a group that traveled to neighboring counties with Dino on bass and his dad on flat-top guitar. When Dino's dad passed away several years ago, his guitars and amplifiers went to Dino. Dino had been keeping them in the music shed. It's filled with his family's history of making music. The day of the flood, everything floated in the water for about 13 hours. Dino says it's painful to see his dad's guitars and amplifiers in such rough shape. I packed them guitars and amplifiers for him. Well, I started about 11 or 12 years old. And there are other guitars out there like them, but it's not that guitar. Money could not buy them back. All of Dino's guitars, including his dad's, have been drying out at his other sister's house. He has hoped that some of them can be saved. Dino says his dad's amplifiers are too far gone to fix, but he plans to keep them anyway. And people say, what are you going to do with them? I said, they'll sit right there. I will, I will look at them every day. Because as long as I got them, I got my dad. There have been some bright spots for Dino since the flood. A friend bought him a new bass and amplifier to replace ones he lost. Now, he's able to play every Sunday at church again. And Dino's sister cleaned up his flat-top guitar. He just got it back from her a few days ago, and already he feels relief being able to play again. I'm not down and out no more. When I'm feeling down, I can go get my guitar. And it just makes me feel better when I can play my guitar. He called my name, and I heard his voice. He called my name, and I made my choice. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Millstone, Kentucky. Nicole lives in eastern Kentucky, in a town that saw heavy flooding damage. She'll be reporting more stories on how folk traditions were affected by the flooding. Several years ago, I saw this Instagram post of a paper doll accompanied by all these accessories that shouted out Appalachian counterculture, like a Stand With Red t-shirt for the 64-year-old mother who tree sat against the Mountain Valley Pipeline, and a copy of Elizabeth Katz's book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, and The Mothman, and all these other signifiers of, like, hip Appalachia. That post was shared by an account called Queer Appalachia, which had a huge following. It mixed calls for mutual aid projects with memes about possums and Dolly Parton. Queer Appalachia, which was headed by an organizer who went by Mamon, also published a zine called Electric Dirt. These days, the account's no longer active. A story in the Washington Post detailed accusations that the people behind Queer Appalachia were mismanaging funds, particularly donations meant for mutual aid. But the account's legacy is a rallying point for Appalachia's queer community continues. More and more LGBTQ people across the region are speaking out and being heard. Some of them are featured in a new book, Y'all Means All, The Emerging Voices Queering Appalachia. It's edited by Zine McNeil and features 17 writers who challenge the stereotypes and marginalization faced by LGBTQ Appalachians. I recently spoke with McNeil and two of the book's contributors, 
I'll let everyone introduce themselves. My name is Zane McNeil. I am from um, Morgantown, West Virginia. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. And I got into this work from uh, zine making. My name is Maxwell Klo. I use they, them, or he, him pronouns. I am from Richmond, Virginia. I just do writing and talking and oral histories with people from Appalachia. My name is Beck Banks. Uh, I go he, they. I'm originally from uh, the Tri-City area in East Tennessee. I originally got into this work because it ties into what my dissertation is. Um, and I was looking uh, to talk to Appalachian transmedia producers. Let's begin by talking about Y'all Means All. What does this book tell us about queer Appalachian culture today? This book is amidst what I see to be a pretty significant sea change in how we understand Appalachia and queerness in Appalachia. If we were to look back maybe even three or four years ago, and we were to look at the things that have been written, that have been spoken, that have been engaging with queer Appalachian capacity, it was pretty limited, at least on in like a public sense. Um, it was pretty hard to find any information about it. There really wasn't that much. But in these past couple of years, I think we've really seen a lot start to crop up. And all of these different organizations and books and chapters and articles and writings that are all starting to point to the future of queer Appalachia or Appalachias, if we want to call it, as being something that isn't singular, isn't monolithic. All these different voices that are agreeing and disagreeing and engaging with one another and providing this landscape that is really polyphonic. There's all sorts of these exciting voices that are coming in that previously might not have had the same platform. That's something I think is really exciting. And yeah, when thinking through a platform, I just want to mention that we really fought for that, right? Getting this book under contract, we, we lost contracts, right? Like being able there, we started this in 2018 where there wasn't work done on this, you know, and it's not like there weren't queer Appalachians doing really cool things, but we had to create our own communities, you know, that we started out doing DIY zines because that's where we could archive our voices and find our own histories because, media weren't giving platforms to queer and trans Appalachians. And so all of us, you know, Queer Appalachia and these other projects, this project, I feel like really helped open the space up um, for new emerging voices to, to finally be able to think through and talk about their experiences in a way that has been historically eclipsed. And that's really powerful to be part of, just to, to see this, this, change and this turn and this this embrace, finally, the support of these kind of projects. One of the things that jumped out to me in rereading the book today, or rereading your introductory essay today, Zane, was this idea that kind of Appalachia is almost inherently queer in some ways, that when you traveled out of the region, you were made to feel queer with air quotes around it just by the fact of your Appalachian-ness. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Because I found that to be a compelling, fascinating idea. Yeah, I I feel like a lot of Appalachia is historically othered as a region, right? And so it's, we're othered by the opioid epidemic or othered by poverty or othered by these, these stereotypes that are interconnected with those, like the notion of the hillbilly, right? And there's been some really great work written about that as like a queering agent. And so I, like a lot of other Appalachians, didn't identify really as Appalachian until it's outside of the region. And in a lot of ways, it was really alienating for my queerness as well, because I, I faced a lot of discrimination in, in Maryland and abroad um, for being from West Virginia that made me start looking into the history in, in Appalachia about how exploited of a region it is, right, by capital interests. In the 2016 election, it was labeled as Trump Appalachia, right? And there all this fracking, all this this coal mining, this literal stripping of the land, this notion of being lesser than these incest jokes, right? All these cultural and and regional and and geographic toxicities that for me felt very queering. And so I couldn't really separate these constructs from my own queerness. And I, I felt like just whether or not my sexuality and my gender were queer, which they are, I would still have felt othered or not normative, like there's Appalachia, then there's the rest of America, 
right? And, and we hear that a lot from people outside the region. So in, in some way, it felt like Appalachia itself was a queer construct. But even more than that, there was some really great work done by Ray Geringer at the same time that I got more interested in electric dirt and, and, and queer Appalachia as an idea. And in Ray's interviews, they they talk to one queer person who says there's kind of something queer about Appalachia and everything, right? The rocks, the mountains, the insects, the relationship you have to nature, everything's a little bit queer. And I felt like there was so much freedom in that idea. And it felt so safe to me and just made sense to me in a way that metronormative queerness didn't. We're talking with the editor and two contributors to a new collection, Y'all Means All. The Emerging Voices Queering Appalachia. When we come back, we'll talk about how Queer Appalachia, the culture, was informed by Queer Appalachia, the Instagram account, and how it played into the making of Y'all Means All. That's coming up after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. We can't really talk about queer Appalachia culture or cultures Without mentioning Queer Appalachia, the Instagram account, both because it was a avenue for some people to come to this community. Um, for me, as, as a follower of that account, it, it just crystallized this sort of new emerging Appalachian culture and expressed it in this really bright way that it seemed like it became a convening point for people in the region. Um, I... Can y'all talk about your experience with uh, with queer Appalachia? Because I know it's sort of inherent in y'all means all's origin story. I feel like queer Appalachia gave us a language and a platform and a, a visibility that we didn't have before this, right? And so when I found queer Appalachia's Instagram account and read Electric Dirt, it finally made sense. I feel like I had a language to understand my gender, understand my queerness, understand me as a person and find a community. And it was from that space that I feel like all of this has evolved. Uh, this is Beck. Uh, when I first came across Queer Appalachia's Instagram site, it was, uh, yeah, I felt seen. It was phenomenal. I had tried to do something similar years before. I had a, uh, a site called Queer Mountaineer and I was trying to do it one person and I saw all the ways that Queer Appalachia was trying to do it and they were getting it right. Uh, or at least I thought they were uh, at the time. And, and um, yeah, I, I really just wanted to know more. I felt like everything came together for the zine that spilled into this Instagram account, the mutual aid, the reaching out, um, and that it was something that people could get from all over the place. And as somebody who left um, Appalachia years ago, uh, I just wasn't expecting to ever hear a voice that loud. Can one of you kind of break down what eventually happened with it? with queer Appalachia. I um, very recently, like a month or so ago, had an article published in the Journal of Appalachian Studies kind of detailing this, uh, this, this breakdown that sort of happened. So I want to preface it with nothing like legal has happened. This is all more or less alleged. I don't want to make any like accusations or anything like that um, beyond our own personal experiences. But so close to about uh, two years ago, this article came out in the Washington Post that essentially was asking the question of, Queer Appalachia is receiving all of these funds, um, allegedly for mutual aid. Where are these funds going? And they weren't really able to track down any concrete place that these funds were going, nor were they able to receive much financial transparency from Queer Appalachia at all. Um, and on top of those, this kind of financial sort of mistiness that was going on, there were also these um, pretty substantiated allegations that people who were commenting on these queer Appalachia posts saying what's going on or expressing some kind of discontent, those comments were getting censored. They were getting deleted. They were getting kind of pushed to the wayside, which is another big problem, obviously, especially when 
a lot of those commenters were black or indigenous or trans or some combination of those identities. And so that article came out. And then a few days later, um, on the Queer Appalachia Instagram account, some posts came up. And those posts were essentially saying what the article saying is false. They talked to an ex of mine. So there's some bias there. And they kept going like this. Maybe two weeks later, if even maybe even a week later, um, the account came back and said, this account's been taken over by black and indigenous activists in Appalachia. The account is now decolonized. And I'm using big air quotes around the word decolonized. So that was seemed like, okay, everything's I mean, like amended itself. Things are going to be good. A few days later, apparently the account got taken back. But if you look at the account now on Instagram, and I checked this morning just to be sure, it still says that they're decolonized. And all of the posts from after that Washington Post article came out are gone. And they've been gone since probably September of 2020. And so if you were to go onto the Queer Appalachia website at that time, I believe now the Queer Appalachia website is up for sale. So that whoever was paying for the domain name didn't renew that license. Um, but back then on the Queer Appalachia site, there were these notices that would come up and they would say, hey, we're registered as a nonprofit now. Financial transparency statements will be coming out. By the end of 2020, and then pushed back to summer of 2021, then end of 2021. And as you can guess, they kept getting pushed back. None of these statements really emerged, and nothing has been posted on the Queer Appalachia account since. And it caused a pretty significant ripple um, throughout the various communities that we had. And I think one of the reasons we can point to that is because on one end, while it was this massive culture engine that was changing the sort of language and image of Appalachia, it was also one of the only ones that had that much clout and that much uh, cultural capital such that they were able to kind of solely define the region how they wanted to, which doesn't always yield the best results because the queer Appalachia is like, it, it's not monolithic in any sense. There's so many different voices and ideas hopping on. So how did, how did the book grow out of the ashes of that account? So the book was happening before that. Uh, and it was, it, it was, um, you know, inspired by the work that Queer Appalachia did. I, there were some changes that definitely happened around that time. We had a meeting, uh, Zane called a meeting, everybody came together. And his debate is, do we keep the chapters that Queer Appalachia is in? Um, as in, like, the ones that I was helping them write. And the answer was no uh, for the most people. And I think that it served as a really great springboard for the work to continue uh kind of almost like what queer appalachia started up but in a different route and a more multi-voice account of the region mamone was very overwhelmed um what had started out as a collective in memory of one of their friends ended up sort of being them and their partner and so they had a lot of projects and because we have multiple we live in an axis of oppression especially as trans appalachians that it's easy to get overwhelmed, especially if you're doing mutual aid and collective work. Not to say there wasn't something insidious or harm done, because there certainly was. Um, but that's a sort of what things just fall through. But Mamone knew, Mamone and Chelsea knew the piece was coming out and didn't warn their partners. And so what they started doing was giving grants to universe, to um, Kentucky Mutual Aid, giving artists grants, posting that they were going to buy up some land and, and give it back to indigenous communities, all to deflect from what they knew was coming. And because they didn't warn us, we weren't prepared for the backlash. So suddenly Queer Appalachia was canceled in a lot of spaces um, for these allegations. But the problem that hit us, because we were about to publish this book, it was the manuscript was finalized. This news came out and then suddenly we didn't know what to do because we were all mostly activists, um, activist Appalachians, queer Appalachians who were empowered by this work. And so not only did it put the book in danger, but it also really made at least me question the value of this kind of work. A lot of people are really hit really hard because Mamone didn't warn us. And that was really difficult for us, not just as our projects and our, our communities, but also the way we understood and really trusted Queer Appalachian as a, as a space and a, as a community itself. Well, the book did survive, I guess. You know, it was published earlier this year, 2022 by PM Press. You know, I, the, it seems like there's a, 
comprehensive is the wrong word, but there's a broad and yet deep number of voices that kind of drill down on these different topics and reflect these different queer experiences in Appalachia. What does this book tell us about the queer community in Appalachia? And what does it tell us about the future of Appalachia itself? I feel like it depends on the voice, right? After what happened with Queer Appalachia, we solicited additional chapters from those who were directly harmed. And so we were able to get um, voices like Rachel Hernandez and then uh, Mama, who, which is an acron- which is a anonymous name because they also didn't feel safe talking through what it's like to be Black in Appalachia. You know, Rachel talks about what it's like, what the harm of App- Queer Appalachia was. You know, Maxwell, not as much in, in this chapter, though a little bit, but also in their work with the Journal of Appalachian Studies, um, special issue that Jessica Corey and I did, talk about what we've learned and what's still valuable um, from the queer Appalachian archival community. And so the problem with queer Appalachia was that you get a lot of power, you get a lot of platform, and then you're suddenly the voice of what queer Appalachia is, right? And in a lot of ways, that was uh, a very, a white voice, right? As, as Even if you're at the axis of oppression, it's, it's still a white voice. And so what Y'all Means All tries to do, um, and sometimes struggles with too, because we are a predominantly white collection, is thinking through how trying to not be the monolith voice, right? We're not trying to say this is what being queer in Appalachia is. You know, the emerging voices, the erupting voices of not just queering Appalachia and these disciplines that have historically marginalized us, but also finding and trying to hold on to queer histories that have been eclipsed as a, as a political project, right? And then imagining queer futures. And this collection has allowed us, and this community that it has grown up has allowed us to try to build these worlds. It really has opened the floodgates recently. Um, I think that the success of Yellow Means All, the thousands of copies that it sold so far, I think that that, uh, I, I think it's not just people who are going to be queer in Appalachia that are interested in this, it's just the number of audiences that are out there and just turning an eye towards trans queer people in rural places um, and understanding that that's not 100% what we're having in Appalachia too. Um, it's been really amazing and I would not have seen guests anything like this 10 years ago. Uh, I think that that is one thing that has come out of the ashes of queer Appalachia and its popularity is seeing all the other voices that have been emerging. That was Beck Banks, Zane McNeil, and Maxwell Clough. They each contributed to the collection Y'all Means All, The Emerging Voices Queering Appalachia. It's published by PM Press. Native Americans inhabited Southern Appalachia for tens of thousands of years before white Europeans set foot here. Much of that history was scraped away as colonists and settlers pushed west. But some Native traditions carry on through song, music, food, and art. The Eastern Band of Cherokee have been making baskets for centuries. The art form has undergone some changes. New generations of basket makers have imagined new designs and found ways to deal with hard-to-find materials. Folkways reporter Rachel Green spoke to two women in Cherokee, North Carolina, who were dedicated to keeping their craft alive. Some artists hone their skills in classrooms. Others, like Betty Maney, are practically born into their art. When you live in something, you, you, you just know the process. <laughs> Betty is a small woman with a kind, round face and short gray hair. She's a renowned weaver of white oak and river cane baskets and a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Like many other Cherokee basket makers, she learned her art by watching her mother, shadowing her as she gathered materials. When Mom went out to cut her tree down, we went with her. You know, we we were with her and everything that she did. Betty and her siblings were also there when their mom cut the tree into splints. Betty remembers her mom would lay a scrap of blue jean fabric on her lap and whittle the splints down until they were smooth and ready to be dyed and woven. Betty, who works out of her home studio in Cherokee, North Carolina, started making baskets in the mid-1990s. Her mom, Geraldine Walkingstick, was a well-known basket maker. 
she encouraged Betty to pick up basketry too. One day my mom said, you need to start making baskets because if you don't start making and learning how to weave baskets, it's going to die out. Weaving also allowed Betty to make extra money for her family. She got her start with white oak, her mom's signature material, and she was a natural. Looking back, I realized it. it's amazing how I already knew. Mom didn't have to sit down and say, okay, this is how you lay your splints out, and this is how you have to go over and under one. During the 1930s, ethnographers identified nearly two dozen basket patterns traditionally woven by the Eastern Band of Cherokee. The patterns are geometrical and can be somewhat abstract. The flowing water pattern, for example, is made of intersecting splints that zigzag up the side of a basket. Many are dyed with plants like walnut or butternut bark to create color contrast. So here's some of the butternut. Betty relies on that contrast right to create her distinct and precise patterns. And this is the spiral lid that I'm using to make the lid for this one. She likes symmetry and uses different colored splints to repeat certain elements like vertical lines or bands that encircle the basket. What I like to do is do a band around the bottom. And as I weave up, I put a separation in there by repeating a specific design with some colors. They're usually oval or vase-shaped, sometimes with lids, sometimes with handles. It's all up to the basket maker. And then I will repeat the bottom design on the top. So it's real distinctive when you look at it. And for Betty, the patterns are a continuation of her mother's legacy. My mom's designs that she used in her basket still live through me and my sister. To us, that's keeping her work alive. But Betty finds ways to put her own spin on what she learned from her mom, too. I call what I do contemporary cultural art, because it's always an improvement. You're always coming up with something different. You're always making things your own. You can't make these baskets just anywhere. Many of the materials used, like river cane or bloodroot, are native to the southeastern United States. It's just something that's important to, to the Cherokee, to our culture, because it identifies who we are, what we do, and why it's important to us. That was our way of life. That's how we survived. Betty started making baskets during a craft revival in the 1990s. By then, baskets were mostly sold in craft stores to tourists or entered in competitions. In the past, though, Betty says they were mostly utilitarian. When I was little, we still needed them for fish baskets. And the small square ones were used as a sieve in the hominy-making process to rinse the ash out of the hominy. And then the handle baskets were used for gathering and storage. The tourism industry started growing in Cherokee after the nearby Blue Ridge Parkway was completed in 1936. Although baskets were still used in everyday life, basket makers also began selling them to tourists during the busy summer months. Basket making plays an important role in Cherokee's economy, but pressure from tourism and increased land development made it more difficult to find basket making materials in the wild. The resources, the natural resources, became scarce. And that was largely due to private landowners and development. Like the river cane that grows along the cornfields, farmers were just plowing it up and burning it. And Betty isn't the only artist to feel the effects of this scarcity. Faye Junaluska is a basket maker with 40 years experience who has also had trouble sourcing her materials. Faye comes from a long line of basket makers. There's my great-grandma, my grandma, my mother, and me, so I'm, I'm a fourth generation myself. Like Betty, she learned the art from her mother, Emma Squirrel Taylor, whose work was even displayed in the Smithsonian Museum of American History. Both Betty and Faye work with white oak, which is harvested as a sapling when it doesn't have many knots or branches. It takes a skilled hand to determine if a white oak tree is suitable for a basket. You don't really know if a tree is usable until you cut it down and look inside. Faye says, Today, on the reservation, you can't find too much white oak. River cane can also be tough to find. 
The bamboo species is native to southern Appalachia and grows in large patches called cane brakes. It's also used to make dart guns, a Cherokee weapon, and floor mats. Fade doesn't remember a time when the river cane grew nearby. I never heard my mother talk about going out and gathering cane or the women gathering cane here somewhere. So Faye and her mother had to find new ways to get their materials instead. This usually meant going outside Cherokee or bartering with other artisans. For example, if she knows someone who has white oak on their property... Maybe do trade out my paint for tree. They want the basket, then I'd trade out on the basket. Betty has also found ways to cope with scarcity. She uses bloodroot, tiny white flowers that only bloom in early spring, to dye her basket splints a vibrant red. But to get that color, the petals need to be fresh. So after harvesting... We have learned to uh, clean it really, really good and wash all the dirt off, put it in freezer bags, and we can freeze it. And it's still fresh. A local nonprofit has stepped in to help, too. Revitalization of Traditional Cherokee Artisan Resources, or RTCAR, was founded in 2005 by the Cherokee Preservation Foundation to help protect and preserve resources for Cherokee artists. One of their programs connects artists, including Betty, with landowners who have materials they can use. Now, once a year, Betty and other basket makers go all the way to Kentucky to gather river cane through a connection made by Articar. Finding ways to cope with scarcity is crucial for the survival of basket making. It also relies on strong communities and people who work to keep the tradition alive. Because you've got so many different uh, community members, family members involved in the process, it passes on that knowledge to them. That way it stays alive. There have been many times that a basket-making technique nearly went extinct. But each time, the Cherokee community saved it by teaching and ushering in new generations of basket-makers. Betty was one of those novices once but now she finds herself on the other side of the exchange. When somebody asks me how to make a basket, I'm happy to share. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Rachel Green in Cherokee, North Carolina. 23 acres of land in southern West Virginia, once used for forestry research, are being turned into a recreational area. Its two miles of trails offer more than just hiking. Jessica Lilly reports. The trailhead of the Gardner Center's network of hiking trails is located less than a mile off of Interstate 77 at Exit 14. The property was once used as a forestry sciences laboratory. And the foresters just like to get out in the woods. Mercer County Commissioner Bill Archer says that historically, the federal government created a good foundation for public recreation here today. Since it was a federal government entity, you know, they spared no expense as far as rock lining all the trails out through there that are open. To prepare the site for the public, though, the county worked to clear debris, modernize some of the signs found along the trail identifying some of the trees, and soften the rock-lined paths. We had a lot of excess uh, wood, and uh, we uh, released a uh, wood chipper for a period of time, and we ground it all into to wood chips. And my late wife uh, uh, recommended that we put that on the tra- trails, but if we had them, we might just as well use them to make a nice soft surface for people to walk on, and it's also very safe. The site also has a building once used by the U.S. Forest Service. It's the only building in the country dedicated to honor John F. Kennedy before he was assassinated. Just behind it, forestry conservationist Jeff Palmer checks the map on his phone as we approach a patch in the forest. So, of course, which way are we headed? Well, we're going to go, this right here is the Gartner, or the uh, Poor Farm Cemetery Trail. So you said Poor Farm Cemetery Trail. Do you know how it got its name? I think of Uh, Probably around 1911, the county acquired this property and it became what was called the Mercer County Poor Farm. Hmm. People who could not support themselves for one reason or another, they ended up here. And what happened was when people would pass away, they were buried in this cemetery up here, which is now called the Poor Farm Cemetery. 
Along the right side of the trail as we get started is a set of horseshoe pits, once overgrown, now restored for additional recreational use that I just couldn't resist. All right, well, let's go get a ringer. The pits around the old iron pegs were made from excess wood while clearing the trails. Here in southern West Virginia, that's, that seems like the route uh, people want to go. Recreation is a big thing now. Mm -hmm. And so any opportunity that we can offer to anybody, you know, we try to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. Come on, let's see you get a ringer. Come on. <laughs> no pressure, huh? Along the hike are rectangle signs strategically perched in front of trees and elements of the forest. This right here is one of my favorite trees. That's the black gum. And the way I can tell that's black gum is by the bark. And the, uh, those chunks of bark are so, they protrude out so far. At one time, the forest was used to highlight the timber and types of woods that would be used for furniture after World War II. A lot of history here and we're working to preserve that history. So when we have hikers coming up here, we encourage them to go onto our website, and as they hike, they can just look at the history of this whole place. You know. The interactive map and other details are available at gardnercenter.org. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jessica Lilly in Mercer County. The Mercer County Commission is working to connect another section of the hike that should be open by spring 2023. Baseball season is officially over, but fans are already counting down the days to spring training. That passion has persisted for decades, and here in Appalachia, it's intertwined with historic teams and coal camps and coal towns. For miners, baseball was a way to earn a little extra money and take a break from dangerous work. Jeff Bossert from Radio IQ spoke with author L.M. Sutter and shares this story. The coal camp teams go all the way back to the early 1900s, playing in towns like Coburn, Dorchester, and St. Paul. But there were an endless number of teams, many near mines in neighboring states. They became a spot for some future big league talent, while others whose pro careers were over had a last chance to play before a crowd. Writer Lynn Sutter stumbled across this history when moving to the area in the early 2000s. I saw a photograph of a ragtag baseball team. They had the, the name Miners on their jerseys, and some of the letters were sewn on, and some of them were drawn on with a pen. And they did have coal dust on them, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, here's this great juxtaposition of these guys doing the worst job in the world and then coming out and putting on baseball uniforms. So she started doing her research and tracking down and doing interviews with players from the coal camp team's final years in the late 40s and early 50s. Baseball, amateur baseball back then was a big time, semi-pro baseball. It was big. Merchants helping out and things. That was, that was uh, advertisement for them. Sure. That's Sutter talking with Terry Smith, who, after serving in the Navy in World War II, played for a team based in the town of Appalachia. Around 2006, she talked to roughly 35 players for her book, Ball Batted by Tuman, a history of Coalfield baseball in the Appalachian South. Smith and most others have since passed away. Sutter says these players were pretty competitive to the level that a good many were offered minor league contracts, but the pros couldn't pay nearly what the mines did. Willie Winkles pitched for the Dorchester Cardinals mining team and told Sutter he questioned his boss about larger paychecks. <laughs> I'm a timekeeper, and I'll take care of it. And you pitch baseball. A little over three years, and I got a time and a half shift for every Saturday. That was $27. That's big money yeah, back then. big money. Sutter says many of the players' day jobs in the mines were determined by race. She says nearly all the black players worked underground, while good ball players who were white, like Winkles, were hired solely for their skill on the diamond and almost always worked above ground and Sutter says the teams themselves were segregated. Theodius Miller pitched for an all-black team, the Dant Bearcats, but he told Sutter the crowd in the stands was mixed. Did you guys draw some of the white fans, were you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a whole heap of white people come to that game. Yeah. I'd like to say we wouldn't look like one big happy family because yeah. they, they would come to watch us and we'd go watch them. Among the best-known players from the Coalfield teams was Wise County native and Boston Red Sox pitcher Tracy Stallard. 
He was best known, perhaps unfairly, for one pitch, allowing New York Yankee Roger Maris to hit a then-record-breaking 61st home run in 1961. It made Stallard famous, but Sutter says he grew tired of being asked about it. He died in 2017. Sutter, who lives in Norton, says it takes some doing today to find evidence of the Cole Camp teams, as well as minor league clubs of the same era, but plans to talk to schools. I'd like for the young people who attend the local high school here, I'd like for them to understand the very same fields that they play on are basically located where the Class D Mountain States League field was located in Norton. Lehman Field in Pennington Gap, built in 1933, was one of the last minor league fields with no outfield fences. It hosted many minor league games, but also Coalfield teams from time to time. It's now a local recreation site in Greenway. There are no historical markers, but Pennington Gap Town Council member Terry Pope says that would be a nice designation. Sutter's 2008 book on the Cole Camp teams was honored with the Sabre Award from the Society for American Baseball Research. Her work can also be found in print and online in the Coalfield Progress newspaper. I'm Jeff Bossert. The baseball traditions built in these coal camps continue in Appalachian baseball today, though in a different form. The Appalachian League encompassed minor league teams across the region during several different stints, from 1911 all the way up through 2020. When minor league baseball contracted in 2021, the Appalachian League evolved again. It recently completed its first season as a collegiate summer baseball league, with teams in Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and North Carolina. Go Pulaski River Turtles! Take your right hand off the wheel and touch your radio. Put the car in gear. Start out slow. If you live here in Appalachia and follow weather, you may be familiar with something called an inversion. Inversions trap air pollution close to the ground. A new rule in western Pennsylvania was created to alleviate the bad air, but the fall inversion season is still affecting Pittsburgh. The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports for State Impact Pennsylvania. Johnny Perryman is 79 years old and lives in Clareton, near U.S. Steel's Clareton Coke Works. He says the air this month has been pretty bad. Uh, it's been smelling like rotten eggs sometimes, and Sometimes it smells like something, like wood is on fire. Perryman has a heart condition, and when the air gets bad in Clareton, he says he can feel it in his chest. I can smell it inside of my house, and, and not only can I smell it inside of my house, what wakes me up is my heart start palpitating, start beating hard, and, and, and I wake up and I put the mask on. That rotten egg smell is hydrogen sulfide from the Coke Works. The plant is the state's largest source of hydrogen sulfide, and the county has found the plant is entirely responsible for the county's hydrogen sulfide problem. Since the weather turned colder this October, levels of hydrogen sulfide and soot have surged in Allegheny County. Those surges have been brought on by strong temperature inversions. These are weather patterns that trap pollution close to the ground. You can think of it exactly as a lid, uh, and that lid can go up and down. Albert Presto is an air quality scientist at Carnegie Mellon University. He says when the lid is lowered, the more air pollution stays near the ground. Presto says the ideal time for an inversion is a warm, sunny day followed by a clear, crisp night. And they're most common in fall and spring. The problem is worse in mill towns like Clareton along the Monongahela River with lots of industrial pollution. Especially in the Mon River Valley, there are a bunch of sources, you know, It's already at the bottom of a valley, and then you put this inversion on top, and so you're going to get really high concentrations there. Last year, Allegheny County passed a new rule that was supposed to remedy the problem. It allowed the health department to make big polluters follow a set of plans to lower their emissions during inversions. For U.S. Steel, that means limiting production at Clareton by extending coking times. Then, on October 10th, an inversion was forecast. The county issued a watch, basically an alert, but no warning, which would have made companies implement their plans to cut pollution. Jeff Rabinowitz, the county health department's deputy director of environmental health, says the county only calls for a warning if air problems are forecast to last more than 24 hours. So based upon that forecast, 
we did not have information that, that was looking like it would extend beyond the 24-hour time period. Even though no warning was issued, U.S. Steel says it voluntarily set forth its approved action plan. But air pollution levels still spiked the following day, leading the state Department of Environmental Protection to issue an unhealthy air warning. Rabinowitz says the county could try to tighten its standards in the future. As we get data, as we can assess things, we are open to looking at, you know, our, our role. I can't say what direction, what the outcome was going to be, because we haven't begun to do that. Ned Mulcahy of the Group Against Smog and Pollution hopes that the rule will work to curb inversion-related pollution events. I'm optimistic. I think a lot of people put effort into writing that rule to to, to be protective, but no, I'm not sure how it will really work. We'll have to sort of see. Changing the rule wouldn't happen overnight. Creating the current rule took the county health department nearly two years to develop. Reed Frazier, State Impact, Pennsylvania. Finally, we want to clarify a detail reported in a story from a couple of weeks ago. It's about the Itman Company store, a historic coal company building in southern West Virginia. We reported that the complex, built in the early 1920s, sold for $25,000 and is now listed for $499,000. That's true. But David Cybray, who's marketing the building, says that previous sale happened at an auction in 1988, which gives some context for why that number was so low. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Chris Stapleton, Tyler Childers, Jesse Milnes, and June Carter Cash. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. I see the sunrise creeping in Everything changes like the desert wind Here she comes and then she's gone again And I'm just a traveler on this earth Shine my heart behind the pocket of my shirt I just keep rolling